Hello. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. My guest today is Audrey Singer, a senior fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings. She is an expert on immigration policy, urban and metropolitan change, international migration, and demography. She offered her views on the contemporary immigration experience, who immigrants are and where they live, as well as thoughts on the immigration policy reform debate. She says it's hard to imagine reform not happening. Audrey Singer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Fred. Let's start with you. How did you become a scholar of immigration policy? It was a long journey, but I think it was, you know, a lifetime of a confluence of a couple factors. So growing up in Philadelphia in the 1960s and 70s, race, ethnicity, inequality were prominent features of everyday life. And my understanding of being in this world was shaped by those forces and as a as a white ethnic, right? So, you know, when I was growing up, where you lived, where your grandparents were from, what you had for dinner at family meals, which beach at the Jersey Shore you went to, these were all sort of determined by what your background was. I I got in, I was drawn to sociology because of those things and I as an undergraduate at Temple University I majored in sociology and didn't focus on immigration per se then but by the time I got around to going to grad school a few years later I realized uh, I was interested in it went to University of Texas in Austin and that's when I experienced real time immigration with all of the pressures and all of the nuances that were were vague to me before I got there. So I learned a lot on the ground there. I learned a lot, obviously, academically about the topic. And that kind of launched my thinking about immigration policy. And I was always interested in the practical, pragmatic answers to some of the more pressing issues that we face in this country and in place various places across this country. I never really had the intention to to be an academic per se and and teach at a university. So I've been happy to be able to pursue different policy-oriented positions and, and work. And when I moved to Washington, I originally moved to work at the U.S. Department of Labor. I worked on a study of immigrants who legalized during the last immigration reform where we had a broad legalization program in 1986. And it was our first systematic look at this population. So when I think about that and where we are right now, how how much we've learned, how much uh, things have gotten out of hand in a sense, it's interesting to reflect back on that. And a lot of people are thinking about that right now. So that, that that's sort of my, my start. What do you mean by things have gotten out of hand? Well, on the one hand, there's some good things about this out of hand situation. <laughs> there's been a lot more research on immigration, both studies of of immigrants themselves and their characteristics, their motivations, their behavior, but also about the bigger systemic issues in the world and policy issues that the U.S. faces. So we know a lot more about immigrants and immigration right now, which makes uh, the the task of reforming our immigration laws more complicated in some ways. Because when I think back on on the 86 Immigration Reform and Control Act, we didn't know as much as we know now. It was not as big of a deal. I mean, it took many years to 
work its way through. But um, there were, you know, a small number of people interested in this. Immigration was an issue in just a, a few places, really five main states, you know, maybe a dozen uh, localities across the country. And the rest of the country might not have cared as much as they do now, where immigration has really transformed communities across the country in ways that we, we hadn't seen before. And so what used to be a, a more localized issue is now both a national issue mm-hmm. and one that is localized as well. I, th- I think you touched on, not touched on, in depth uh, in your article, Contemporary Immigrant Gateways and Historical Perspective. Can you talk about some of your findings in that recent report and how that contributes to this more complex knowledge that we have today of immigrants and what that means for policy reform? Sure. Um, What's interesting about the two beginnings of the 20th century and 21st century is there are many parallels. Both were times of great industrial change and economic growth. The turn of the 20th century, of course, we were going from an agricultural-based economy to a manufacturing, industrial economy. People were moving from rural areas to cities where the jobs and the industries were located, and immigrants were a huge part of that scene. With that expansion, there was a lot of opportunity, and uh, European immigrants primarily were coming uh, to the U.S. and finding opportunities in, in, in cities like New York and Chicago and the like. At the turn of the 20, end of the 20th, turn of the 21st century, uh, we see a similar process, very broad changes, moving out of manufacturing into um, technology and um, knowledge economy service jobs. And again, we see an increase in the number of immigrants who have been coming, who came to the U.S. during that economic growth period. So both times, massive economic change, both times, large-scale immigration. And in between, immigration was really... um, it really dwindled in the middle of the 20th century. So there is something different. And I, I guess I should point out also, as cities have developed into metropolitan areas with extensive suburbs, we that, that parallels this shifting economy, the restructuring that we've seen over the last couple of decades. And immigrants were also part of that change. And, and for the first time, we have immigrants moving directly to the suburbs. The history was immigrants came to the cities, they lived there close to jobs, close to communities uh, where they had people from their hometowns, home countries, similar language backgrounds. And then maybe they moved out when they experienced economic mobility, or maybe their children moved in the next generation. Now we see immigrants going directly directly to suburbs uh, where there are a lot of opportunities not just jobs, but jobs are relocated to suburbs, housing opportunities, and other services that, you know, affect quality of life. So, you know, we've seen the shift from cities to suburbs and exurbs with the general population and the immigrant population has followed as well. So your, your data in this paper show that the share of the total U.S. population of the foreign-born in the uh, in the, in the 2010 decade is almost 13%, which is as high as it's been since the 1920s. 
and not too far off the peak years of the end of the 19th century, where the 1890s was the highest at almost 15%. So would you say that once again, we are a nation of immigrants? I would say that's that's true. And uh, it's not just the, the share of the population that's foreign born, but I would say what's more important is the new geography of immigration, the fact that immigrants are in many places uh, with very little history or at least no history that people can remember uh, of immigration. Those numbers are really close together. I will point out that uh, in 1900, we had about 10 million immigrants in the U.S. In 2010, there were 40 million. So we've seen um, the, the absolute number go way up. Uh, um, you know, it's waxed and waned mm -hmm. over that entire period. So um, that does make a difference on the ground. Okay. You've called immigrants opportunists. What do you mean by that? What I mean is um, not everybody wants to be a migrant. Not everybody wants to be an international migrant. People who are risk takers, people who are looking for opportunities, people who are looking for better, better jobs, better situations in their lives are, uh, are people who end up being immigrants. Um, if we look at the world, about 3% of the world's population, about 3% of the world's population lives outside of their country of birth. So we're not talking about um, across the board massive movements of people across borders. But of course, they come from certain places and they go to certain places. And that's what really matters from a policy perspective, from an immigrant integration perspective, from an economic opportunity perspective. So this is a self-selected group of people who by nature are willing to take risks, want greater opportunities, for themselves, for their families, want to experience some economic mobility, and um, and and take the opportunities. I've read that of that group of people globally who are migrating, twenty percent, upwards of twenty percent, are coming to the United States. I think Russia is the second. Twenty percent of them are coming to the United States. What does that uh, tell us about um, economic opportunity, about growth, about uh, what's going on in our metropolitan areas and suburbs. That's right. About one-fifth of the world's migrants are in the U.S., uh, more than any other country in the world. We, this is a big country and a lot of opportunity, so that's one factor. But this is an open system in the sense that uh, the U.S. receives probably upwards of a million immigrants per year who are getting green cards or becoming legal permanent residents. There are many, many more who come on temporary visas to work, to go to school here, to do business here. And uh, this is, you know, the U.S. is very much part of the global economy, and that plays a role in who the U.S. attracts. And so opportunities exist across different places in different ways. And what we see is, um, you know, those changes kind of play out across communities in the U.S., metropolitan areas of the U.S. So let's switch then to 
the, the nature of and politics of immigration reform. What, in your view, does immigration reform look like? For me, I see um, a, a range of elements that have been very much discussed in, uh, in Congress, in communities, um, uh, among various groups in the public. I see a whole package of, of reforms that need uh, to happen, including border security, worksite enforcement, uh, a legalization program, including a path to citizenship, changes to our temporary immigrant visa system, changes to our permanent immigration system. And the one thing that is not talked about much and uh, is not necessarily part of the bigger discussion, but from my perspective, looking at places and how immigrants fit in, how institutions and the public response to them, is immigrant integration. So the social, economic, civic, political integration of immigrants into places. We've got the system where the federal government is responsible for both keeping out the people that we don't want to come into the U.S. and uh, being in charge of it, who should be admitted to the U.S. as immigrants. But localities, municipalities, counties, cities, suburbs, metropolitan areas, rural areas, in the, these are the places where immigrants live and work, where they start businesses, where their children go to school, where they worship, um, all of the things that make up everyday life. And there is an opportunity in this next round of legislation to put some emphasis on that at the from the top down, perhaps some funding. But the point is that um, these are places that have been doing the work of integrating immigrants. Um, it falls to them naturally. Some places do it better than others. Some places embrace and welcome immigrants. Others try to deflect them. And so it would be nice for it to at least be part of the discussion in a broader way. I think there's an interesting, challenging tension, therefore, in especially the places that are not as welcoming to immigrants through their uh, state laws, through local laws, trying to enforce federal law. Uh, so how can the Congress that we have now break through some of the logjam that we're seeing where the Senate passed comprehensive immigration reform bill this summer, but signals from the House are, if they take it up at all, given everything else that's going on, they want to take it up piecemeal. One of the interesting things about this moment is there's um, a big thing missing from the last time we tried immigration reform in 2007 and sort of the few years before that moment leading up to that. And that is there aren't a lot of loud anti-immigrant voices uh, in the media, in Congress, and, and in other, other places that are trying to bring immigration reform down. Those voices are largely absent, which makes me think that there when we come down to it, there really are a lot of people who are behind getting reform done in whatever fashion it has to get done. So I see that as a hopeful sign that this is not going to die because of a groundswell of um, protests against getting this done. 
what I do see is um, that working out the details and the intricacies of the policies and, and getting agreement on those things is where there, there has to be a lot of, uh, of work to be done. But doing nothing is probably not in the cards. Um, there are many reasons to go forward with reform. Being neutral on this is not uh, a, an option. And being proactive is, is, I think, what's driving a lot of the, the reform momentum right now. You know, in terms of the timing, I think um, it's hard to imagine with the few days that we have left in this calendar year, with the big issues that Congress has to tackle, um, how this will proceed. But I don't think it's going to go away. I don't think it's an issue that the Senate wants to go away. I, I do think uh, the House is, you know, they need to come together on this. And uh, and and it's it's important that the Republicans, particularly in the House, are part of the decision-making process. So they have to be in on it. They have to be uh, leading in the House. And uh, that's that's what we're seeing right now. It strikes me that some of the provisions that have been espoused, like E-Verify and the Agricultural Guest Worker Program, are favored by business and businesses in places like Texas and North Carolina and even California, uh, possibly Arizona. And these kinds of uh, policies that business support would herald progress in getting reform uh, through the House of Representatives. Do you think that's a possibility? Uh, business leadership has been very strong on immigration reform issues, and uh, both behind the scenes and and publicly. And I think um, in historically, they've always been, if we can categorize them, pro-immigrant because they understand their own business needs, they understand the larger workforce mm -hmm. issues, they understand where they want to be in the future. So it's not inconsistent that they are um, supporting various measures of immigration reform. And, um, and I think that uh, they are applying pressure, and that's been consistent. If the worst happens and immigration reform bills fail to pass through the House of the session, they get derailed in 2014, 2015 is too close to the presidential election, and we don't see immigration reform comprehensive reform until the next president. What are some of the consequences of failure to pass comprehensive immigration reform soon? Fred, nobody wants to think about it that way. I know. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, that happening because there is so much pressure right now. Uh, there's pressure on Republican Party to approach this issue carefully and to cultivate a relationship with the growing Latino population in the U.S. who, who will make up an increasing percentage of voters, especially young people as they are uh, getting older. Uh, they can't afford to do that. They know that. Th there are consequences um, for immigrants, for all different kinds of immigrants, the people who are waiting in backlogs for their green cards. There's over 5 million people who would see, um, you know, an expedited process if we got something like the Senate bill. 
So there are consequences for those immigrants. There are consequences for the 11 million estimated undocumented immigrants in the U.S. Uh, they would continue to live in the shadows. They would continue to um, uh, be excluded from better labor protections, economic mobility, and perhaps more income, better social services, including health, not necessarily with the health care bill. They're not part of that. Um, better educational opportunities for their children who would then uh, be able to get in-state tuition in many places um, and uh, so forth. So I think those are two immigrant groups that that would be affected. Businesses not having available and appropriate workers is another issue. And I think that's, you know, depending on who you talk to, there are, uh, there are shortage, employers always talk about the shortages that they have. But, you know, alleviating some of the the red tape around worker visas and while protecting those workers and, and American workers uh, is another consequence. And just in general, uh, we would have a better management of the flow of immigrants coming into the United States, whether they were on temporary visas, whether they were on, you know, whether they were coming with green cards. And this would help, you know, we need reform. So we're not managing the flow right now. And this would be um, another consequence. And, and, and the, another one that is more global is immigrants have choices about where they can go. And when we look at the world's economies, particularly in some of the big developing countries, their economies are growing. There are lots of opportunities in places like Brazil and China and India. And the competition is just going to get stiffer. And do we want to be which side of that do we want to be on is a, a, another thing we have to consider. I see a lot of passion uh, in this context, especially amongst and around young immigrants, uh, people who were children when they came here with their parents. Uh, we've, we've heard about the, the DREAMers and the, uh, the Deferred Action Program. Is this a new phenomenon, and do you think this helps contribute to the potential for success in reform? The dreamer population has been a really key part of the reform movement. And um, the DREAM Act was first introduced more than 10 years ago. So this would allow people who came to this country without status or fell out of status at a young age but have lived here all their lives to, uh, to get legal status and eventually become citizens and, you know, be able to have opportunities like other young people um, their age. So they've been, a, uh, they've been politically mobilized and have put a lot of pressure on the administration, on, on Congress, on um, local uh, officials. But they've also revealed themselves to be an important part of the immigrant population an important part of the future of the immigrant population. And I think um, what we've seen is, uh, I would say, consensus around this group. This is not uh, necessarily a group that chose to come here. So the usual um, arguments against providing legal status for undocumented immigrants can't be used for them, you know, those being people who broke the law should not be rewarded. And uh, they, they've been 
part of the U.S. society. They've gone to school in the U.S. They, m many of them, have no memories of their home country or have not been there in many, many years. Um, in a study we did of applicants for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, uh, recently we profiled uh, the people who have applied for that so far. And some of the most striking findings uh, from that study is how long people have been in this country. By definition, they're young because they had to be younger than 15 when they arrived. They can't be older than 30. They had to be in the U.S. for five years. But um, one-third of them were five or younger at arrival. Um, and three-quarters of them, of these applicants, have been in the U.S. for at least 10 years. And these are like, you know, prime years. Uh, and, and, and now they're making transitions to adulthood, to, to further schooling, higher ed, to the workforce, to starting families, um, and various other things. So many of them consider the U.S. home, and it's not like they know uh, any other place. Right. And you said uh, that one way that makes them American is that they've gone to school here. What else makes them American? Schools are a major integrating institution. I mean, this is where people spend a good amount of their days, so a lot of time is spent in school. Um, the educational experience, you know, we've all been through that. It's a socialization place. So uh, it's a really important institution in the U.S. Um, but I think the, the big thing that makes them American is what I just mentioned, how much time they've spent in the U.S. and their their attachment to this country. It's it's very clear that um, these are people who have been here for a long time that would like to stay here, that, you know, their opportunities are here, their families are here, and what they know is here. And I think that's really um, the biggest thing. So looking ahead, uh, amidst all the noise that has been generated around immigration reform, what do you think is one additional thing or fact that is not getting heard? Um, I don't know if I could put one fact on the table, but I do think that there are a couple things that um, that I, I would have to put out there. One is the fact that we seem to make a distinction in this country between immigrants who come here for work purposes and immigrants who come here for other reasons, the biggest one being uh, to uh, to be with their family members. And so we often hear statistics uh, about a very small number of people who come here uh, as permanent residents are, are coming attached to employers, so green cards that are, um, are allocated to people who have job offers here compared to those who are coming to join family members. And um, that's an important thing to think about in terms of policy because in reality, Workers have families, and family members work in this country by and large. So it's a distinction that I think we make a lot out of. But when we look at the experiences of immigrants and immigrant families, um, that that is uh, that's often overlooked. And I would extend that uh, idea to the fact that a lot of immigrant families and households have people with different immigrant statuses. So. Some people, perhaps the adults, may be unauthorized. The children may be U.S. citizens or uh, uh, people who are here 
in various statuses, marry U.S. citizens. There are lots of mixed status families. And that really complicates uh, the, the future of our policy decisions. And I think it's something that we don't often think about. We think about um, immigrants in these categories, and it's really much more mixed than we think. Well, Audrey, we will continue to look to you to help us understand the immigration issues facing our country. And I thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thanks so much. To learn more about Audrey Singer and her research, visit brookings.edu.